Thank you so much to the band and the vocalists for leading us so helpfully and wonderfully this morning. Let's turn back to John 20 and to the greatest Sunday morning in human history so far. There'll be a greater day when Jesus comes, but this is the greatest one so far in John 20. And it will help us to be reminded of something I'm sure you've heard countless times over the last year and a half as you've gone through this Gospel of John, what he says about his reason for writing. So if you look at the end of chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Jesus did many other signs, signposts pointing to what's going on, pointing to reality. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm sure you could recite these off by heart by now because they're such glorious verses and so key to our understanding of this gospel. But here's the thing, John wrote with the expectation that there is enough evidence in what he writes to give any reader to put it together and come to the right conclusion about the Lord Jesus. Now that's remarkably helpful and very striking even in this rather cynical age of ours where not only the historic truth of the Christian gospel is questioned, and that was always the case. Even in the, the Bible times, even among the disciples, there were those who said, don't believe it. Not only do we have a, a great uncertainty about that, but another thing has happened. Our, our generation is one where people will cheerfully be convinced that even if this was true, it doesn't really matter hugely. That's another thing. That's another challenge. That our friends might be quite happy for us to believe this and they might even say, well, you might be right. But what does it really matter? So as we look for signs in the text of John's gospel, the questions we should have in our minds as we turn to these 18 verses this morning are, first of all, is this reality? Is this reality? Did this happen? And secondly, is this relevant? Because even if you are convinced of the reality, you still need to be convinced. We need to be convinced of the relevance of this for our lives. John has written as a, 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 he's written as a very careful eyewitness to help us answer both these questions. You may remember in chapter 19, he describes the work of the Roman execution squad that Friday. Uh, in verse 33 of, of John 19, he says, when they came to Jesus, they saw that his he was already dead, so they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then he says this, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. He was an eyewitness to the brutal execution of Jesus, and he's recorded for us here not only his own experience and the experience of Peter, but the eyewitness testimony of Mary. And we're going to stay with John's camera angle today, as it were, as he records the experience of Mary Magdalena. It probably wasn't her second name. It was probably an indication that she came from Magdala, uh, a city on the southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And we're going as far as we can this morning to relive that morning in her experience. I don't have a PowerPoint because I couldn't finally agree on my headings until very late on. And I still haven't agreed on the second one. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But mainly three things. Number one, we're going to look at her anguish. 
Have a look at that first verse. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Oh, she was brave. She was brave. She went out in the dark when no other respectable woman would be out and about. She went along these dangerous streets to a horrible, traumatic destination, the fresh grave of her beloved Lord Jesus, whose uh, horrible execution had taken place very close by two days earlier. And Joan focuses entirely on her. He doesn't mention the other woman who may well have met her at the tomb to further treat the corpse with the spices they'd brought. But you'll notice in verse 2 there's a plural. We don't know where they've laid him. And that may be a reference to the other women who were with her. But John is zooming in the camera angle as he directs his story, as he tells this gospel. He's zooming in on Mary. And he tells us that she discovered this open tomb. And that was anguish upon anguish for her. Already anguished at his death. But now the tomb had been broken into, she thought. She'd seen him die. She'd watched his body being taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, assisted by Nicodemus, who brought a vast quantity of myrrh and aloes and spices, and they externally embalmed the body of Jesus. And they wrapped, it, wrapped his body in spice-impregnated linen strips. And she'd seen that, and she'd watched as they carried him to the nearby tomb. That was a Friday afternoon, nightmare day. This is now Sunday morning. And Luke tells us the woman had prepared spices to freshen the bandaged corpse of the Lord Jesus. But when she arrived, she saw the, to the, the, the tombstone had been removed. And that meant only one thing for her. That the tomb had been broken into and the dead body of the Lord Jesus had been stolen. And that was the ultimate insult being added to the ultimate injury. She concluded that this was a horrible development. Verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, probably John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. And then it was the turn of Peter and John to do the running. They ran back to the tomb and uh, John outran Peter, but he waited outside the tomb until Peter arrived. And then Peter, typical Peter, he plowed straight in. And have a look, verse 5, stooping to look in, John, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on the head, on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went in also. He saw and believed. Now that's really fascinating. He saw and believed. The sight of the folded grave clothes lying empty, the, the clothes that had previously shrouded the corpse of the Lord Jesus, seeing that was enough to persuade John at least that there must be another explanation than the one that Mary had given. John believed that something colossal had happened. Now the Emperor Claudius 41 to 54 AD, he had made it punishable by uh, the death sentence if you were caught desecrating tombs and stealing bodies. So that did happen. That was a thing at that time, long before Burke and Hare. But it was risky. 
Why would a tomb raider, why would a body snatcher take the time to unwrap the body in the tomb? Apart from, it, apart from the loss of time and the risk of being caught, these wrappings made the corpse more portable. And once John saw the grave clothes as they were, Mary's suggested explanation did not seem likely to John. And he just says, at that point, he believed. Now, if you're tracking with the question of how are we today, 2,000 years later, to believe this? And you've heard John say at the end of this chapter, these things are written that you may believe. Notice how this worked for John. So he was there, he saw a shroud without a body. He was struck by what was there, an empty but strangely orderly tomb. And in that moment, John tells us that he believed. But then he immediately goes on to say that this opportunity that actually we might, we might be envious of, an opportunity to physically see physical evidence, to be there, that was quite a remarkable opportunity. We're not going to get that. But he says that that opportunity was not the means of him finally being convinced because he says in verse 9, for as yet, they, Peter and John, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So he saw evidence, no body, empty, folded, grave clothes, but he didn't see the Lord Jesus at that time. He saw him bodily risen later, but not at that moment. And yet he does say that he believed. And his belief was confirmed because the scriptures, the word of God, opened his eyes to this reality. That's in line to what, with what you'll come to next week. Who's preaching next week? So Jonathan, don't know, I'm not going to go into your uh, section for next week. But you'll come next week to see that Thomas, who was having none of this resurrection chat, he just did not believe it. His mind was closed to the possibility. When the Lord Jesus appeared, he said to Thomas, put your hands in my side. And, and Thomas had the opportunity manually to probe the risen body of the Lord Jesus. And as a result of that, he believed. But then, again, immediately, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what did Jesus mean other than that there is a way today to be utterly convinced that Jesus is bodily risen from the dead, not a spook, not a spirit, not a ghost, not risen in our memories, not honoured in our hearts, not that kind of resurrection. But the same body that was crucified that he lived in for 33 years, the same body that was wrapped up no longer in the, in the grave clothes. There's a way to be convinced of that today from the word. That's an extraordinary thing, but it's true. This is how God does his work. And that's why John tells us that though his fledgling belief in the resurrection began when he saw the folded grave clothes, he needed to see from the scriptures, God's word. They needed to be the window by which he fully saw and understood the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's why we're going through this text this morning. This is the window onto reality. This is how we see 
how things really are, what God is really like, what our world is really like, what our own hearts are really like. Now, back to Mary's anguish. Verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes. It may be that they'd already left the tomb by the time that Mary returned, still in terrible distress. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, let me uh, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Now, there are some thrilling details that we'll notice just in a moment, but first of all, I wanted to read that whole sweep. Do you see what Mary didn't see? So there's no mention here of the folded grave clothes, which both Peter and John were very uh, impressed by, very significant for them. Mary doesn't see them. Not only that, she doesn't interact with these two angels in white. They ask her a question, why are you weeping? She answers them as though she wasn't talking to two angels in white. You, th- you would think if you saw two angels in white, it might be difficult to get the words to come out or you might comment on that first or something. But she, these, why are you crying? They've taken him away. And she doesn't recognise the Lord Jesus at first. But this is absolutely true to life, isn't it? This is a human reaction to being grief-stricken. She was overwhelmed by the situation, blinded by tears. Also blinded by fears. Why did I say that? Well, do you remember the detail that Luke gives us about this Mary, about Mary from Magdala? Luke chapter 8. She's introduced to us there as Mary, in verse 2, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. No wonder she was in such anguish that morning. There had been in her life terrible, destructive spiritual influences over which she had been powerless. But there was a day when the Lord Jesus came and kicked them out of her life and set her free. She was tearful and she was fearful because What might this now mean if he was no longer around? The last time she'd seen him dead, stiff, lifeless, powerless, was the one who could control those things in her life over which she had no control. And now that Lord Jesus had no control even over what was happening to his body. Somebody had come and taken him away and there was nothing Jesus could have done about it. There was nothing Mary could have done about it. She can't even find his body. She can't even mark his grave. It was her darkest night. But it was about to be flooded, of course, by the brightest light. And there were already signs of that happening, weren't there? Whatever fear she may have had about the power of the demonic forces from her past, the presence of her, the, the two messengers from heaven in these bright clothes that would have given the best perzel washer run for its money 
made it crystal clear that it wasn't the forces of death and darkness that were at work in the tomb, but the forces of light and life. Now we're getting to the good bit. But actually, it's all good. Because if we're going to find truth and light and hope in the gospel, it has to be able to speak to us in our darkest hours, to our deepest fears. And that's what we discover that it does. For a morning to be the greatest of all time so far, it has to follow and swallow the night that is the darkest of all time so far. And so we move from her anguish to the second thing, which is her astonishment or possibly her acclimatization. I still can't decide what to call this heading. And you, you can see where astonishment comes in, and I'll try to explain what I mean by acclimatization. Verse 14, having said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now here's the thing. I don't think we can actually comprehend the astonishing nature of this moment in history. How did her mind compute this data that was coming to it via her eyes and her ears? Now we're looking through the window of the word. We're looking through the window of this biblical testimony, spirit-inspired eyewitness of John, eyewitness of Mary. We're looking through the window into what happened in the tomb that day. And so much rests on us seeing this as reality. And all I can do this morning is try to draw back the curtain and make what we're seeing in this text as plain as possible. So let's think about what we've just read. Let's think about what we're seeing here. Mary thinks she's talking to the gardener. The reason, the reason Jesus speaks her name and instantly she realises it's him. She calls him teacher or master and she clings to him. That's very strange. It's very strange because she doesn't seem to be at all spooked suddenly to be in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. That's not typical of human behaviour. We were talking about this yesterday. One of our daughters, Jenny, had been studying in London and decided to come home uh, for the weekend without telling us to, to, to give us a surprise. And Claire and Jill picked her up at the airport and they decided to have a bit more fun that Claire and Jill would come into the house as we were expecting. We were going to have a curry together. And, um, and then Jenny would sneak around the back. And at some point when we were out the room, she would, just, she would just be there when we came back in. So she did it. It worked absolutely beautifully. beautifully. And Margaret came into the kitchen and there was Jenny standing. Now, what was the reaction? She screamed and she ran out of the kitchen. Now that is a, an authentic human reaction to seeing someone you know and love who's in London back in Glasgow when you're not expecting them to be there. You've seen that on TV. You've seen it on your phone. These amazing videos that I always bubble at when they 
military service personnel come home earlier to their families than, than was expected. And it's a great surprise. And, but the family don't know what's going to happen. And then the person is just there. And they, I have seen mums nearly collapse. I think that night, Margaret nearly had a heart attack. It would have rather spoiled the party if we'd been left wondering what was going to come first, the ambulance or the curry. <laughs> Awkward. But you, you know what I'm saying? This is extraordinary. How could Mary be so astonished and yet so instantly acclimatized? Mary. She looks around. Master. And she clings to him. How could she so instantly have come to terms with the risen Lord Jesus? The last time she saw him, he was a corpse. Well, it's because of who he is. And it's because he has the power not to scare but to utterly secure those who know him. So I love to look at John 20 through the lens of John 10, where John recorded what Jesus had said about himself as the good shepherd. Do you remember verse 3 of John 10? I'm sure you do. The sheep hear his voice. Now think about this in terms of Mary that morning. The sheep hear his voice. He calls them out by name. He leads them out. When he's brought all of his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. His sheep hear his voice and they know his voice. That's why she didn't freak out. Mary heard his voice. Milliseconds later, her brain put it all together and she knew his voice and she clung to him in wonder. Now, why does this matter? Why am I making a song and dance about this this morning? Because Jesus did many other signs, John tells us. This is a sign that he has included. This testimony is a pointer to something extraordinary. This is a sign of what it will be like for those who trust in the Lord Jesus, who know him as their shepherd, as their saviour. This is what it's going to be like for us when he comes again to this world, as he will, in stunning glory. And every eye, the Bible says, will see him. Every eye will see him. And the Bible says those who pierced him will look upon him. Not only those who nailed him to the cross, but those who down through history thought so little of him just to mock him, to rubbish him. They will look upon him. And those who rejected him and mistreated him will want the rocks to fall on them rather than have to look into the glorious face of the Lord Jesus. But John wrote to those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus, 1 John chapter 2, and he said, Now little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That confidence is not self-confidence. That's not swagger. That's not, I've got my story ready. It's confidence in the stunning presence of the Lord Jesus who gives his people that confidence in the moment when we have absolutely no grounds for confidence. 
when we stand before the one who sees everything, every thought. Isn't that incredible? That we will be confident and we will not shrink from him at his coming in shock and awe, in stunning glory so that this world has never seen anything quite like it. And I think that's what Mary experienced that day. There was something about the resurrection presence of the Lord Jesus that assured her, you're in safe territory here. You don't need to scream and run. Even if you don't fully understand what's going, deep down you know you're safe here. You're utterly secure here. You're confident here. So she speaks his name and she clings to him. Now we don't get to physically see the evidence of the tomb. We don't get physically to hear his voice. But we see him in his word. We hear him from his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Gettys capture it brilliantly in, the, in their song, See Mary Weeping. Where is he laid as in sorrow she turns from the empty tomb? She hears a voice speaking, calling her name. It's the master, the Lord, raised to life again. And then the song goes on. The voice that spans the years. Speaking life, stirring hope, bringing peace to us will sound till he appears on that day. For he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. I don't know all of how he does it. But I know he's told us to proclaim him from his word. I know he's really clear in that. And as we do so, in reliance on the Holy Spirit, his voice spans the years. And he speaks to us this morning from his word as it's proclaimed 2,000 years after these events happened. And he has a way of authenticating the reality of that to men and women today. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. These things are written that you may believe. So Mary's not clinging. Uh, Mary is clinging to her risen saviour. He's not a ghost. He's risen from the dead in a human body. He's not the gardener, although I do wonder if John, in recording that detail in verse 15 that Mary supposed him to be, to be the gardener, I wonder is he giving us just a stunning little parallel for our own astonishment. We know that Adam was the original gardener, wasn't he? He was put in charge responsible for the creation to care for it in the magnificent garden in which God had set him. But we read this morning, didn't we, 1 Corinthians 15, for by one man death came, by a man also Jesus has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, we're not Jock Thompson's bairns, we're Adam's bairns. We're all in Adam. But also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam, the gardener, was rebelled and expelled from paradise. But Jesus, the true gardener, unfailingly obedient to his father, died for our sin, not his own, and opens the door back into paradise forever for those who will trust in him. So he kind of is the gardener. But not in the way that Mary thought of it. And we get a glimpse of that paradise he's opened for us in verse 17. Jesus said to, to her, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now he wasn't protecting himself there. It wasn't that, that this was the dead body 
and somebody working it from the back making a sound and Jesus was afraid, you know, the person was afraid of Mary getting too close. It's not that. We know that because Mary was able to cling to him and Jesus only asked her not to do that. And later he did tell Thomas to place his hand in his side. So Jesus did not fear manual examination. So it's not that Mary was crushing him or he was fragile in some ways. Not that. It's most likely that the Lord Jesus detected in Mary a profound joy at being physically with him again and a, pro a, a profound fear of ever letting him out of her grip. And so he was able to reassure her, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But what he was saying was, Mary, it's okay, I'm, I'm not going away immediately. I will go to my Father. I've got work to do here, and then I'm going back to glory, and I'll prepare a place for you, and I'll come again. But I'm not going immediately. We're going to be together for a few weeks. No wonder she was clinging to him. She'd been clinging to him even when he was dead, trying to preserve his body from the natural process of decomposition. Still clinging to him. Of course we get that, don't we? But now Mary didn't have to find his dead body. She didn't have to freshen the embalming spices. She didn't have to keep him even safe in her grasp. Although that was her instinct. Rather, he was the one who had lived and died and risen to life again to seek and find her. To meet all her needs. To keep her safe forever. And not only her, this message goes to the nations of the world. It's great, isn't it? We don't need to cling to these bodies. We don't need to fear the reality of dust to dust. It is still an astonishing thing. Humanity has not got used to the shock of our mortality. A horrible reality. But we don't need to fear that because of Jesus. He's risen. And Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our an old-fashioned word, our lowly body, our body that's capable of returning to dust. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body that Mary saw that morning. He'll be able to do that transformation of our physical bodies by the power that enables him to bring all things under his control. I've spoken these words at countless gravesides in, in countless crematoria. And the hope of that rests on what Mary saw in the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus that day. This is why this is relevant. If you have a body, this is relevant. If you don't have a body, you can go home now. No wonder Jesus told her not to hang about, but to get going with this news. Jesus said to her, go to my brothers. You see the, the familial impact? Go to my brothers. He didn't mean his physical brothers. He meant his, his disciples. And say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father. I'm ascending to my God and to your God. There's the paradise that he's opened for us. How astonishing that because of what God the Son accomplished by his life and death and resurrection, ordinary, broken, sinful, dust-to-dust -dust people like me and like you if you will have him can come to share 
not only in going to heaven one day and being with the Lord, but can come to share the very level of sonship that Jesus enjoys with his Father. Can you, can you get your head around that? <coughs> That's what he did for us. That's what he's made possible. Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, and he builds it, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So God the Father treats you in the way that he treats his son if you belong to him by faith. It's glorious. So whether you call that her astonishment or her acclimatization as she so rapidly came to terms with what was standing before her for the reasons we've seen. I will leave to your judgment. Thirdly and very briefly, her announcement. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Jonathan said to me this morning, that's what we've been praying for all week. That would be our experience this morning and every Lord's Day morning and every day. It's all we want. It's all we need. I have seen the Lord, she said. And that he had said these things. She wasn't to keep this to herself. It wasn't to be Jesus and me for each tomorrow. It wasn't just be him and me together here. This is great. I'm not letting him out of my sight. I'm not letting him out of my grasp. It was to be, don't cling to me. This is more important. Go and get this news of what you've discovered to my brothers. What an honour to be the first proclaimer of the full Christian gospel as she told them what she had done and who she had seen, and what she had heard. And her message was this, Jesus lives for you, and Jesus has things to say to you. That's exactly it. I've seen the Lord, and here's what he said. And that's exactly where we are this morning. That's our experience. We have a risen risen living saviour and he has things to say to us so having looked through the window of the word at the witness of the word of God what have you seen have you glimpsed reality have you sensed the compelling relevance of the Lord Jesus who suffered once for sin no more nails the just for the unjust to bring us to God and now lives in the power of an indestructible life to which he will raise you if your trust is in him. You will be bodily raised. You will not be a disembodied spirit. The new creation is going to be as rock solid real, in fact, more rock solid real than this world. John wrote with the expectation that there is enough evidence here for any reader to put it together and come to the right conclusion about the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we have tried to draw back the curtain this morning. We've tried to see what is really here. We've tried to pay attention to this ancient text and to the witness it gives us to the bodily resurrection of your Son. 
and to the encounter of Mary with her risen Saviour. But there's an aspect to this that only you can do. And so we ask you, gracious, saving Lord, you're the evangelist. Even this morning, would you open blinded eyes? Would you help us to see this glorious truth and to build our lives upon it, to see reality, to see the relevance and to bow with Mary at your feet, to own you as Saviour and Lord and praise you from the depths of our hearts all our days. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.